have your Bible, I invite you to open it to Ephesians chapter 6 today. Ephesians chapter 6, our text will be, we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, we'll get to that part of God's Word in just a moment. I want to talk, we've been talking about the uh, armor of God the last few weeks. And this morning, I want to talk about truth, message truth be told. Talk about the belt of truth. Um... Thinking about truth, heard a story recently about a little boy when it comes to lying who was learning a lesson about lying. His mom was having a Bible study and he had some, uh, she had some friends over. They were having a Bible study and the boy comes down the stairs screaming and yelling, interrupting the Bible study. He says, Mom, there's a lion outside. And mom said, now, Johnny, you know that there's not a lion outside. Now, you interrupted. That was very rude. And he said, mom, mom, there's a lion outside. And she said, Johnny, you're interrupting. Get upstairs. You're, stop it. You're making a scene. You just want to take. He said, mom, mom, look out the window. There's a lion outside. She finally gets up, looks out the window, and there's this house cat that's out there. And she says, Johnny, now, you know that's just a cat you just interrupted us. Now you need to go upstairs and you need to ask God for forgiveness and you need to talk to God and ask God, tell God you're sorry for what you have done. So Johnny goes upstairs and a little while later he comes back down and one of the ladies uh, asked him, he said, Johnny, did, did you talk to God? He said, I sure did. He said, did, did you say you were sorry? He said, yeah. He said, well, did God say anything to you? He said, yeah. He said, don't worry, when I saw that cat, I thought he was a lion at first too. <laughs> lying and telling the truth are things, I think, in our world that sometimes are lines that are getting blurred. Uh, the truth as an absolute for everyone, everywhere, all the time uh, in much of our culture and much of our world is becoming somewhat of an archaic concept to some people. The thought that truth is permanent and unmovable uh, is uh, much to some people uh, would argue with, that there's much more gray than black and white, they would argue. To, there's been a shift in our culture, and truth has come under fire in many ways. There's been a shift of viewing what truth is. To, to just kind of illustrate this for you a little bit this morning in a bit of a kind of anecdotal way, uh, I want to show you something that you're probably somewhat familiar with, but I think it kind of illustrates a little bit of the change and shift in the culture around us. Some of you, you probably recognize this as the Harvard crest or the Harvard uh, coat of arms from Harvard University down in Cambridge. The one on the right is what you would see um, if you got any literature from Harvard these days. If you're a graduate of Harvard, you probably have that uh, crest on your diploma or your degree. Um, it's, it's not unfamiliar. You'd see it on much of the Harvard um, uh, literature, anything you see these days. The one on the left is an older crest, an older coat of arms. I don't know exactly what year it dates from, but of course Harvard's roots go back to the uh, 17th century. I'm not sure if that coat of arms dates that far back, but you won't find it on any of their stationery or any of their publications. You'll have to look at some of their older buildings on campus, or I think it's on the gate over Harvard Yard. When you enter Harvard Yard, I think that crest is there. Um, 
But this picture came from off one of their buildings. Uh, and they're a little bit different. You can note the crests are a little bit, a little bit different. They've changed over the years. I say this as an anec- a little bit of an anecdotal illustration because I did some research this week and tried to figure out why and when and how the change got made. And there wasn't a lot of information out there. I looked through some of the Harvard Library journals and some of the histories of the, of the, of the crest to try and find out um, how and why it was changed. And, and there's some stuff on when it was changed, but a little, not a whole lot of people commenting on why, what the motivation was for changing it. But at some point in history, it changed. You can see the one on the left, there is a word above the crest that says Christo, if you can't read it. The word below the crest is, uh, they're both Latin words, et ecclesia, uh, and it's uh, for Christ and the church. Christ and the church is the communication. And the word in the middle is Latin veritas, meaning truth. And so when the crest was originally put together, uh, there was a connection between Christ and the church and truth, either in origin or destination or both. <clears throat> that there was a recognition that, that truth was connected to uh, Christ and the church. And, and so they made this connection in their crest, and they made this connection. Many of you know Harvard was founded as a school to train ministers and, and missionaries originally uh, and was that way for, uh, for quite some time. Uh, but at some point along the trail, and again, I don't know why, whether it was a conscious effort or whether it was someone who just didn't have enough space on the printing press or whether some PR marketing person thought it would look better. But at some point, the words Christ and the church were dropped and nobody changed it back and nobody uh, fought to have them maintained there, I guess. But at some point, the words were dropped from the crest. And I, I think that is somewhat symbolic of the shift that is made The idea that truth can be separated from Christ and the church. That we can have truth, but we neither have to have Christ or the church as either the origin or the destination or the purpose of that truth. That somehow there's a separation between truth and Christ and the church. But there's another difference that maybe you can see from your seat and maybe you can't. If you look at the crest on the right, you can see that Veritas is spelt over three open books. If you look at the one on the left, it may be harder to to make out because of the angle and the the coloring of the picture. But you see the top two uh, words or parts of the words, the V and the E and the R and the I, are on two open books. The T, the A, and the S is actually written on the spine of a book that is open but is turned away from you. It's actually written on the spine of the book. The book's open, but it's laying, you know, face down away from you. And sort of the symbolic uh, meaning of that is that truth can be known to a certain extent, uh, but there are some things that will be a mystery. There are some things that God alone can make known. There are some mysteries that we just may never know unless God alone chooses to reveal them. And again, at some point along the lines, and I don't know where, and I don't know why, and I don't know who, But at some point, along the lines, the third book got turned. And no longer is it a closed book, turning away from us, written, but it is an open book. 
And whether it's intentional or not, I think it really symbolically brings across the idea that, that I think many at Harvard, but probably many in our world around us, you don't have to be at Harvard, probably many of the people you live and work around would hold, that through human reason and through human understanding that we can gain all of the truth and understanding that we need, that we don't need a God to reveal us to us truth and there aren't any mysteries that given enough time and brain power and people that we can't figure out and I think this this little anecdote kind of just symbolizes a shift in our culture that the looking at truth in our culture things that were once clear that truth is connected to Christ and his church is no longer clear that there used to be certain things that were clear that we didn't have to really have discussion about that suddenly are brought into discussion for centuries even millennium we never had a discussion about the definition of marriage it was clear. Everyone understood it. No one had to define it. No one had to discuss it. There certainly were no discussions about it on the floors of parliaments or congresses. And suddenly we find ourselves in a day and age that questions all truth and questions something as fundamental as what's the definition of marriage? Or it used to be clear that there was no question about the, the idea that you would have a, a boy's room and a girl's room in a school. I don't mean classroom, I mean restroom facilities. But the Board of Education in California just passed a bill that says that that's no longer the case, that's no longer a truth that we want to hold to, that if a boy is feeling like a girl on a particular day that they can use the girl's room, and if a girl is feeling like a, a boy that they can, use, uh, they can use the boy's room. That these things that we once thought, well, they're clear, we don't even have a, have a discussion about them that suddenly uh, we're having a discussion about because truth has shifted. And the idea that truth is, uh, there's an absolute truth everywhere for all time, for everyone, is no longer accepted. This morning in talking about the belt of truth in the armor of God, I want to look at truth as a part of the armor for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about the importance of the armor to help us to stand. And there's an important piece of armor called the belt of truth that Paul tells us about. I want us to read the scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 14. And we're going to read that scripture together. And then what we're going to do, we're going to look at, because each of these pieces of armor are given to us to be able to stand against the devil's schemes. So we're going to look at what are two schemes that the enemy uses uh, against us and why the belt of truth is important. And then just after that, uh, four quick questions that if you have the answer to those questions, they will help you to stand up against the devil's schemes. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 14. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, 
Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. So as we look at this truth, this belt of truth, we remember that what Paul says is, look, the armor is giving to you so you can stand, not so you can fight. Because we found out last week, we remember, God is the one who fights for you. You're not called to fight the battle. You're called to stand in the midst of the battle. It doesn't say fight. It says stand against the devil's schemes. We trust that God is the one who is fighting for us, but we are called to stand. And we're not called to stand and, and battle against people because that's not who the battle's against. The, the scripture says, look, there are sport, spiritual forces that you do not know, that you do not see that the battle is really against. People are who you're called to reach and to love and to share the hope of the gospel with. But you're called to stand. I'm called to stand. And one of the pieces of armor, Paul says, if you're going to stand against the devil's schemes, you've got to have truth in your life. You've got to have the belt of truth. So let me talk first about two schemes that the, the enemy uses, tries to use against you. One, I believe he tries to use against those of you who are sitting in the church today, who are part of the church. It's one of his favorite schemes to use against people in the church. The second one, I believe, is used often to keep people out of the church, to keep people from coming into the church. And both of these schemes are built, uh, I think, are identified in a question in Scripture, each a different question in Scripture. So let me give you the first one. The first scheme is this. One scheme of the enemy is to divert you from the truth by calling into question the truth of God. One scheme of the enemy is to divert you from the truth by calling into question the truth of God. And so the question in Scripture that we see that I think brings this out is one you, uh, that's, that's very early on in the Scriptures. It's the serpent. It's the enemy talking to Eve, right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? When the devil came against Eve, someone who had a relationship with God, someone who knew God, someone who knew the word of God, someone who walked with God, when the devil tried to come against her, he didn't try to tempt her with how pretty the fruit was or how pretty the tree was or anything like that. I mean, that's not what we have in the scriptures. What we have is the, the first thing he does is he comes to her and he questions the word of God. He questions and puts in her mind doubt regarding the word of God. Did God really say? One of the schemes of the enemy against you and against me when it comes to our lives is to divert us away and to try and get us to question the truth of God. He'll do this in many ways. He'll, he'll take a truth that you have held and cause you to question it. Something as simple as maybe a truth that's found in a scripture like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But the enemy starts putting in doubt in your mind. But God doesn't really love you. But does God really love you? Look at your life. The enemy will start putting these ideas in your mind. Look at your life. Look at all that's going wrong. Look at the pain you have. Look at what's going wrong in your life. God doesn't love you. I mean, if God loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. If God loved you, it wouldn't be this hard. If God loved you, you wouldn't have these struggles with your health. If God loved you, you wouldn't have this trouble at work. If God loved you, you wouldn't be having this trouble with this. But how can you say that God loves you? 
And he starts to cause you to question the Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of God that says that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, and yet the enemy tries to get you to question that. Questioning the Word of God in your life and in my life. And yet, if we look at the Scripture, the truth is that we know many people who loved God and who God loved who went through things much harder than anything we walked through. You look at the Apostle Paul and none of us would say, well, God didn't love Paul and yet he was stoned, yet he was shipwrecked, yet he was, you know, he was thrown out of cities and run out of cities. Did God love Paul? But yet the enemy will put that in your mind and you'll question, does God really love me? Or God can't forgive you. I mean, these people don't know what you've done, but I know what you've done, and you know what you've done. God can forgive someone else, but he's not forgiving you. And yet the truth of the Scripture says if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he will forgive you from your sins. And yet the enemy will try and use that word and say God hasn't forgiven you. And he'll try and keep that thing in your life and keep you in that place. Question the word of God instead of receiving the forgiveness that God offers for you. Try and crush your hope. What hope do you have? There's no way out of this. You've tried time and time and time again and you're stuck in this place. Why don't you just quit? Why don't you just give up? Try and plant those seeds of doubt. Try and plant those seeds of hopelessness. Try and get you to give up on even life itself. And yet the truth that the Bible says is my strength is made perfect in weakness. That when you're at your weakest point, that's when God has the greatest opportunity to show his glory and to show himself strong. So you, we get to a place where, God, where, where the enemy tries to use this scheme against us to question the word of God in our life. And that's one scheme that he will use against us. Let me talk about a second scheme that he'll use against us, but also against people who are outside the church, against you, but also against people who keep them from coming in the church. And that's this. The second scheme is this. The enemy is used to dilute the truth so that you don't even try to find it. Dilute the truth so that you won't even try to find it. He floods the market with ideas and thoughts and information so that you and I stop looking for it. But so that someone will say, hey, look, I, this is too much. I can't process it all. Look, I'm just trying to pay my bills. I'm just trying to work my job. I'm just trying to provide for my family. Who can figure this stuff out? floods the market with information. Some of the people that you'll talk to about Jesus, one of the reasons that they won't take a step toward Jesus is because they look at all the information that's out there and they say, smarter people than I have tried to figure it out. So what hope do I have? And the question I think in Scripture that I find that points to this type of thinking is in Pilate. When Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate says, you are a king then, said Pilate, and Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king in fact for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth everyone on the side of truth listens to me and then Pilate says what is truth what is truth this leader 
this man of his cosmopolitan day, this, this man of, uh, of the marketplace and government. Jesus presents him with the idea of truth, and he says, what is truth? And this is much the mindset that's in our culture today. How can you have the truth? How can you possibly say? See, what the enemy has done, he's made it like, kind of like a where's Waldo. This is the where's Waldo scheme, right? This is the where's Waldo scheme. It's not that Waldo's not in the picture. It's just that there's so much other stuff in the picture that it makes it hard to find Waldo, right? It's not that truth isn't in the world, but the scheme of the enemy is to flood the market with so much information that you can't find the truth or even hope, hope to, find, to find it. And this is, what, this is one of the schemes the enemy has used in our day. It used to be that the only knowledge of truth that you had was what was told to you by your parents. I mean, way back, maybe in your village, maybe the village elders, what you could discern from nature around you, what maybe some messenger from another village would bring. But that was, that was it. Those were the limits of your truth. Those were the limits of your knowledge. But then with transportation and technology, that changed drastically. Suddenly, with transportation, you can have knowledge of what's going on in another part of the world. Within a matter of a few hours, you can be there, immersed in their culture, their religion, their thoughts, their thinking. Suddenly, with technology, our information is doubling and tripling and quadrupling. And who could possibly keep up? So some of the people that you'll talk to about Jesus have just said, look, who can know? And so they've just said, some respond by saying, you know what, it's a gamble, one way or the other. For them, truth, matters of faith, is sometimes seen uh, no better than a roulette wheel. Uh, you put your money down and the ball's as likely to land on black as it is red, and who knows, I'm as likely to be right as you are, but, you know, we each take a chance and, and hopefully one of us comes out right. And that sounds so dismal, but at the same time, some people, that, that's the mindset. How are you going to know? How are you going to know? Or others will, will take an approach that, well, you know, there's, there's things that, you know, I like about this religion, a synchronistic approach. Some of the things I like about this religion, and, and I like the kind of the love here, and I like the truth here, and I like the meditation here, and I like this. And they just kind of all put it together and say, well, they all lead to the same place anyway, so I'll take a little bit out of each, and we'll all just get there and arrive in the same place. It's, it's this dilution of the market, this idea that how can you possibly know what's true. Others are so overwhelmed by the proliferation of information that they end up with uh, paralysis analysis, and they say, I just can't decide. And they end up paralyzed. And they don't do anything. They don't choose anything. And you'll meet with them, and you'll talk to them about Jesus, and they'll say, oh, that's great. That's really lovely. That's wonderful. And then they meet with their Muslim friend, and then they hear about Muhammad, and say, that's great. That's wonderful. And then they meet with their atheist friend, and say, yeah, yeah, that's great. There's no God. That's wonderful and feel that it's not important to know because who could possibly know? And so the devil uses this scheme. And he uses a scheme, he just dilutes the information market. It's not the truth isn't there. <clears throat> it's just it's too hard to find many times. But the answer to this, first of all, is in a different question. Pilate got the question wrong by one word. He got the question wrong by one word. 
See, the question's not what is truth. The question is who is truth. Jesus in John 14 said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In that moment, Jesus took a concept that was just a doctrine and he personified it in himself. And he says, truth is not to be found in a book or, or in the latest academia or the latest philosophy. Truth is found in the living person of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean you're going to get all the answers to your questions. It doesn't mean everything you want to know, you will know. But it does mean what you do know from Jesus will be truth and completely truth, and it will be the truth that you can build your life upon. The question's not what is truth. The question is who is truth. And when you understand the, the question of being who is truth, then you can sort through and discern who the truth really is. You can look at the ones who proclaim to be or to have the truth, and you can match them up and look at and find that Jesus is truth in what he says and what he does. The way we will stand against the devil's schemes, I would propose, is by answering the same four questions that were answered in school when you got a hall pass. When you got a hall pass in school, I don't know if they still do this, but when I was in school, if you left the classroom, you had to have a hall pass. They probably have some much fancier way to do it now. You probably have like some iPad pass or something that you carry around. But you used to have the piece of paper hall pass, and it said, hey, where did you, you know, I came from Mrs. Smith's classroom. Rick Piccarello has permission to go and use the bathroom, right, in the, in, in the East Wing or whatever, you know. You, where did you come from? Who are you? Why are you here? And where are you going? And I propose that if you will find an answer to these four questions, that you will be able to stand against these two schemes of diversion and dilution when it comes dilution when it comes to truth. And here's the answers to the hall pass. See, they're questions of origin, questions of identity, questions of purpose, and questions of destination. Origin, where did you come from? Identity, who are you? Purpose, why are you here? And then destination, where are you going? The answers to these four questions are hugely significant. Because see, if I start with that first question, and my answer is, well, there was a whole lot of gas in the, around at one point, and, and a whole lot of time and heat, and at the right time and at the right moment and the right concentration of gas, heat, and time, there was this explosion that took place, and after this explosion, then there was that somehow some organic matter that came out of that, and this organic matter eventually formed into uh, more complex life and more complex life and more complex life, and, and now I'm here with my hall pass. I mean, if that's where the first answer to your question, then the other three are already answered for you. Well, who are you? Well, I'm a matter of, uh, I'm a result of circumstance and time and elements that were out there. And why are you here? Well, there is really no purpose. It's just, I happen to be here. This is, I'm just the next chain in an evolutionary cycle. And after this, it'll, something will be better. Um, and where are you going? Uh, back to being an element in the universe, I guess, back to just being contributing to the carbon of the atmosphere. Um, but, you know, it, it's hugely significant how you answer these questions. It's hugely significant. And this is how you can stand in truth. 
Because if you can't answer it in a way that provides significance, then you'll never be able to stand against the devil's schemes. But if you answer these questions and where did you come from, and they say, wait a second, instead of being an object of chance, that I am the result of a benevolent and loving creator who created me in his image and chose to create me, and that's where I came from. And if I answer the question, who are you, to say, no, I am a, I am a son or a daughter of God, say, a sinner saved by the grace of God, that I am here because I have work to do and to bring praise and honor and glory to God and to do work that does that. And where I am going is a city whose builder and maker is God, a new heaven and a new earth that God has called me and created me for, and that's my destination. When those are the answers to the questions, then you can stand against the devil's schemes. Because when the, when the enemy comes to you and says, look, you are worthless, you know, you are pointless. There's no value to your life. So wait a second. No, I was created and I'm an image bearer of God and God sent his son and Jesus Christ to shed his blood for the forgiveness of my sins so I have eternal value in my life. When I answer this question, I say, why are you here? What, what's the point of your life? Why don't you just kick up your feet? Why bother giving to people like Nana and Larry Johnson? Why bother giving to, giving to people who are going out and doing work? Why bother giving uh, your time and energy to, why, just kick up your feet and relax. No, 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 why, I'm here for a purpose, to serve and glorify God and to be a part of what he is doing in the earth and to bring honor to him. And where are you going? If you can't answer that, then what's the purpose of all this? If we're just here and it's done, then what's the purpose of it? Just get all you can, can all you get, and, and just, just, you know, get as much stuff as you can. And he was with the most toys, still dies, but you feel a little better about it, I guess. I don't know. But if, you don't, if you're not going anyplace, what's the point? But if I'm going to a city whose builder and maker is God, who rewards the just and the righteous, and who, and, and, and who rewards those who trust him, you know, the enemy comes against you, and he says, forget it. What's the point? But when you answer these questions in this way, suddenly you can stand against his schemes. And I love it that Paul answers these questions time and time again. And so I didn't have to look any further than the book of Ephesians. I said, you know what? I came up with these questions before I, I went looking for the reference, the answers. I knew the, ref, I knew the answers were in the Bible, but I thought, you know what? I bet they're just in Ephesians. I bet I don't have to look any further than the book that we are in, and I can find an answer, all, all these questions answered right there. And I didn't have to look any further than just one part, the first part of this book. Because Paul rehearses it again and again in his prayers and in his words. And so Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That's origin. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. That's identity. You're a son or a daughter of God. To be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Which, to the praise of his glorious grace, that's purpose. Which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood 
the forgiveness of sins, this is identity again, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ, that's destination. All four of these questions answered in one passage, but it's not just this passage. Paul does it again and again and again in his prayers. He says, this is who you are. This is where you came from. This is why you're here, and this is where you're going. And when I have the answers to those questions in my life, I can stand when the enemy tries to come against me and question the word of God, question my worth, my value, whether God loves me, or try and dilute with information. I can say, no, this is the answer to the question. I have come here as an image bearer created by God. He has chosen me. I am loved by him. I am a sinner saved by grace here to do the work of God that he has called me to, to bring praise and honor and glory to him and to one day be with him for eternity face to face in that city where he has built. And you answer those four questions and suddenly your life has purpose, but you've got to have that truth. You've got to have that truth in your life. I want to close uh, with uh, I want to close with this aspect of truth. Um, I, I told you this week I, I, con- I contacted some of the teachers that sit in uh, our congregation. Uh, they they sit among you on Sundays, but on Mondays they're teaching in a public school someplace. Uh, Sunday they're a part of this congregation, but um, on Monday tomorrow they'll be in a classroom someplace teaching someone else's children. Because I thought about this aspect of truth, and I said, you know, would you just share with me? What is it like when it comes to truth and the classroom and the place and the call that God has on you to be able to teach where God has for you and yet you're a Christian and you are called to teach in a place that isn't always the easiest place to live out and carry out your faith. And so I just contacted some of them and a few of them responded to me and I just want to share with you some of their responses because this battle for truth is truly going on in our culture. And so one teacher the one teacher uh, wrote this. From my experience, the public school system is the, the battleground for the hearts and minds of our kids. Satan's main objective is to dilute, contradict, and destroy the integrity and accuracy of God's word. It's an unspoken rule in public schools that if you're a Christian, you keep it to yourself. There's a conscious effort to take all references to Christianity out of the school. Even if administration doesn't agree, they're afraid of lawsuits, which they can't afford. Public school teachers, these are, uh, these are people who feel called to be here, be there, be in that place, and yet it's a difficult place for them to minister and live out their call. Another teacher wrote this. She said, while I may not be able to pray with my students or discuss this, being able to pray for my students and my class is something that I cherish and something that few other teachers in my school probably do. Last year, I prayed harder than ever for one of my students who was facing difficult times and that I could be used to help this student. I also pray that my actions would be noticed and that people might see something that sets me apart. I may not see the effects of what I do all the time, but I can only believe that it's all a part of God's plan. These teachers in the classroom searching, serving. And finally, this teacher was writing about uh, her experience on 9-11. 
uh, when her school had uh, brought attention, obviously, to the events that happened uh, on September 11, 2001. But her students weren't alive then. This is someone who teaches in early elementary school, and her students weren't even alive then, so they had no idea. So they're, they're, they're processing this and trying to figure out exactly what this is all about. And so one of her students said, did that really happen? Then another said, God can stop a plane crash. She writes, I was struck by this child's faith. I know that God can stop a plane crash. I have no idea why those horrible, tragic events occurred. But to this small boy, God is too big and would stop the plane crash. So, of course, it didn't really happen. I didn't say much as we started walking in the hallway to music class. Just a simple pat on the shoulder and a yes, he can. Of course, I think back and wonder what else I could have said. And this teacher continues, as challenging as working in the city is and as easy as it would be to become bitter about a $2 million deficit, having to buy all our own school supplies and not having the support to, we need to achieve the outcomes we're expected to achieve, I always remember that my classroom is my mission field. Taking a stand for truth, it'll be easier in some places than others and this is the easiest place, Right? Sunday morning as we're gathered together as the brothers and sisters in the ward. But this is the easiest place to talk about it. But God has you in another place this week. God has you in an office or a sales floor or a lab or a hospital or a classroom or a neighborhood. He has you someplace else. And in that place, you'll need to have that belt of truth You'll need to walk in there with the belt of truth in order to live out the call of God that he has on you, that gospel of truth. That perhaps you can, with your answer to these four questions, cause some people around you to just start asking the questions. To just start asking the questions, raising the questions. What are their answers to these questions? And maybe start pointing them to not what the truth is, but who the truth is in Jesus Christ. Finally, the last thing as we close today, I'm going to ask our music ministry to return to the stage. The last thing I want to do as we close today is sometimes standing for the truth, in fact, oftentimes, standing for the truth is going to cost you something. Because there's a tension we all feel, right? I stand up here and talk about these truths, and yet you know the tension in your heart that many of the people you live and work around not only don't hold to these truths, they're hostile to some of them. And they would uh, maybe at the nicest brush them off. Some of them would laugh. Some of them would argue vehemently with you against them. And sometimes standing for the truth is going to cost you something. In fact, most of the time, all battles have costs, right? And we all feel this tension. And if we don't feel this tension of holding to this truth in a world that, that, that wants to cling to a shifting truth, if we don't feel this tension, we've probably given in to it. If we don't feel this tension that the truths we hold in Jesus Christ are different than the truths of the world around us, we've probably given in to it. And sometimes holding these truths will cost you something. Sometimes in a school, it's going to cost you. 
when you hold the truth like this and the union that you're forced to be a part of holds different truths or the teachers association that you're forced to be a part of holds different truths sometimes it's going to cost you something but still even in this country even in a public school in a difficult setting you're still teaching in a country that allows you freedom to worship and and has a lot of the freedoms there are people around the world who don't have those freedoms and it's costing them a lot more there are those that are taking a stand for the gospel of truth to Jesus Christ and it's costing them a lot more I want to close this morning's service by remembering the persecuted church, by remembering those who have taken a stand for truth, and it has cost them a lot. And specifically, one pastor, Pastor Saheed Abdimi, I've, I've mentioned him before. He's the one that's in prison in Iran for his faith. Um, and uh, this Thursday, there's prayer vigils being held around the country and really around the world um, uh, for him that his wife has been organizing and there will be one on the state house steps in Boston that I'll be at from 12 to 1 o'clock uh, on Thursday remembering not just Pastor Saeed uh, who's been imprisoned for, for preaching his faith he was over in Iran preaching but he was caring for orphans his latest plea to the Iranian government was don't make my children orphans because he's been given a death sentence and so he's been in this prison, and his wife has been organizing these prayer vigils. So I'm going to close with a video that's uh, about the persecuted church, but also has her plea for a prayer for her husband. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would be with all the persecuted Christians around the world. That you would give them grace and strength to endure abuse for following you. Lord, I pray that they may be a shining light amongst the dark places they are in. That you would protect them and their families and let them know that they are not forgotten. Be with them now in this moment. Let the love that you took to the cross be in them and in us. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. September 26 marks the one-year anniversary of my husband, Saeed Abedini's imprisonment in Iran. Saeed's currently serving an eight-year sentence in the Iranian prison simply because of his Christian faith. Please join me and others as we pray for Pastor Saeed and other persecuted Christians around the world on September 26, 2013. we have not everyone enjoys and that standing for truth is often costly and so one of uh, the members of our uh, congregation actually James Del Rio um, right over there James, the bearded one he uh, he has organized the Boston uh, prayer uh, for Pastor Saeed he's been in touch with uh, with his wife and, and, and getting a Boston contingent as well as other people from the Boston area and I don't know how many will show up but we'll be there and we'll pray for, for those who have taken a stand for truth and if you're in the area uh, Thursday uh, and you can stop by and pray with us and we invite you to do that um, so taking a stand for truth you need to have the belt of truth if you're going to stand against the devil's schemes because it's going to get hard and when it gets hard will you have the right answers to the questions to respond and stand under those schemes. Would you stand with me and I'll pray and then uh, we'll close our service. In